0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up, you'll hear from Zena Cumpston. Zena is a Barkindji researcher, writer, curator and storyteller. Zena speaks about Indigenous plant use and the deep cultural significance that plants have for Aboriginal people. She also talks about the problematic ways that Aboriginal knowledge is treated and included in Western science, academia and beyond. Zina's new book, co-authored with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher, is called Plants, Past, Present and Future. It's out through Thames and Hudson. Then, I was joined by retired veterinary surgeon, Thai cave rescue diver, and 2019 Australian of the Year, Craig Challen. Craig joined me to talk about his fascinating experiences as a technical cave diver, setting records, especially in New Zealand. He also discusses his involvement in the famous Tam Luang Cave Rescue in Northern Thailand. Craig also spoke about the ways in which ancient Stoic philosophy has influenced his life and how we need to change the way we look at risk and fear. Finally, we heard from Rachel Withers, contributing editor of The Monthly and The Politics columnist. Rachel joined me to discuss the latest in federal politics. I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Zena Cumpston, who is a Barkanji woman, and she's also a writer, researcher, curator and storyteller. She's been doing such fantastic work around Indigenous plant uses, talking about Aboriginal perspectives on biodiversity. And Zena has put together this fantastic book with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher, which has been released as part of the first Knowledges series through Thames and Hudson. It's called Plants, Past, Present and Future. And um, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage from one of their books from this series. And it was just fascinating talking to them about fire in particular and how that's been used. And certainly plants play into that. But this particular book certainly has a, a very different focus and it's also about the deep cultural significance of plants as well. So um, I'm welcoming onto the program, Zena Cumston. It's such a great pleasure to have you, Zena, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today about your book.
1: Oh, pleasure, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. I really like your show. Oh, thank you.
0: I've always been looking at your work and admiring it from afar And uh, as I was saying off air, you know, you've done some amazing projects in the city, the urban context when it comes to plants, and that's certainly something you address in this book. One great project which springs to mind initially is Emu Sky, which you were telling me, although the in-person physical exhibition, which was at the old quad at the University of Melbourne has gone down, it's still in fact available online on the Cultural Commons website. Could you talk to us about some of the projects that you have been doing in recent years that certainly do have a connection back to this book and have a whole range of cultural and thematic streams that come back to plants?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, as you just mentioned, the most recent project that um, I did with lots of other people was called Any Sky and if people want to check it out, they can just go to anysky.culturalcommons.edu.au. And basically all of the artworks are still available to look at online and all of the stories that go with those artworks and actually lots of really amazing um, audio clips that we had throughout the show. I guess Amy's Sky is a good one for me to start talking about because really it was the culmination of all of the work that I've been doing for the past five or so years, which has been looking at Aboriginal plant use um, from an Aboriginal perspective, but also specifically within urban areas because I was working for an entity called the Clean Air Urban Landscapes Hub at the University of Melbourne, which was a hub that was part of the National Environmental Science Program and involved um, lots of different scientists and people from across Australia at different universities. And what we were all really looking at was how we can make cities healthier places for all living things. That's the most basic way to kind of speak about it. And whilst I was working in academia, As you can probably tell from my book, um, for those that read it, I do have some fundamental problems with academia and how it works. And one of my imperatives as an Aboriginal woman within that work was to make sure that I made a lot of materials that brought lots of community members along with me to tell their stories. And also that there were lasting legacies of sharing that knowledge And so that's why I made a plant booklet quite a few years ago now, which was mostly just for schools and community groups, but seems to have been embraced by lots of people. It's not groundbreaking work. Basically, I just looked at about 50 or so different sources of knowledge about Aboriginal plant use, and particularly looking at the plants that are here on Kulin Nation's country, which actually have a lot of correlation with my country. So I'm Barkindji and I'm from Western New South Wales. So whilst we are all so diverse, as peoples and as mods, we do have some um, cultural connections across different regions and across the southeast. You can most certainly see that. You can see it in our art styles. But also we actually share quite a few plants and other really important um, cultural aspects because the country that we're on, um, whilst it does vary quite a bit, there are some similarities and that's why we end up with some of the same plants and practices. So I made that booklet and... For me the best way to kind of finish with a bang because the hub was finishing was to put an exhibition on because I guess a lot of my work is at the intersection of arts and science because um, I do have an arts background from a long time ago. Um, I spent about 20 years working in the arts and then I walked away from it and did absolutely nothing within the arts uh, but I've sort of come back to it now and it's been a natural progression because I've realized all the many careers that I've had they all have one thing in common and that is that I really love storytelling and I really love sharing knowledge with people and inviting people an opportunity to listen and that's really what Emu Sky was all about. Um, More than 30 Aboriginal community members came together to tell stories of country and really it was asking the audience to fundamentally consider what we put at risk when Aboriginal people and knowledge are not in the driver's seat when it comes to the way that we manage country today. So they're sort of two projects, the booklet and this that I've done. And I guess it was just a really wonderful also circumstance that I was invited to write this book because it also is the culmination of lots and lots of work and reading and thinking that I've been doing for a while. And actually I was writing this book and a lot of the dialogues that appear in Amy Sky in terms of the text labels and the stories that bring everyone together at exactly the same time. And I was also writing on the State of the Environment Report, which was put out by the government, federal government, meant to be in 2021, but um, was put out this year. And so I feel there's an, a really great conversation for me anyway. Um, other people might not notice it, but for me, there's a conversation happening between my work on the State of the Environment Report what We Managed to Do with In New Sky, which went out to a huge amount of people, including lots and lots of school students in Victoria. And then my work on this book as well. Um, they're a really lovely trio and I feel really proud of all of them. But um, also I realised how lucky I am to be given this voice at this time in my life and I don't take it lightly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you do address one thing in the book that I found particularly interesting was your focus on collaboration and how much you are driven by that and enjoy the idea of working with many different people, you know, that it's not a, a solo project or, a you know, a solo pursuit. And it seems to come through in all of your work, but it's obviously gives it such strength because it's drawing on multiple perspectives and it's including so many different views and nations, first nations in the conversations as well. Could you talk to us about some of those concerns that you've had about academia that you do talk about in the book, some of the limitations that it's had and the ways that perhaps it has across history excluded uh, Aboriginal voices and Aboriginal traditional knowledge in you know scientific spheres?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess I could start by saying that I've left academia and I have no plans to go back anytime soon. And that's fundamentally because it took my health and was, An incredible opportunity for me to bring together all of these people and all of these narratives, but in the end um, made me very, very unwell because I really believe that institutions today in Australia are so deeply colonial that they're not quite ready to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within them working safely. Mm -hmm. having said that I really respect and and you know all power to all the mob who are working in these places because quite often you're the only person in department or one of two or you know one person sometimes in whole organizations and I think the idea that colonisation was something in the past It's very prevalent I see it in people's language all the time and the way that people talk about decolonising like it can be just this kind of neat parcel of just these few things that you implement not a conversation that's going to take probably way more than the 200 plus years that this mess took to to be embedded and I think yeah it's It's a hard one for me to talk about in a way, but I have written um, a whole chapter in the book about the way that science particularly has interacted with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples over time and how that really has a very thick residue that is still very prevalent today. So I guess one example that I could give that is a simple one, but I think effective is... The fact that even though in universities today there's a massive push for Indigenous knowledge to be included and for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's voices and perspectives to be included, none of that is happening in a way that includes Aboriginal pedagogies or very Mm -hmm. little of it. So, for example, the way that our knowledge is held within our communities, whilst we're all extremely diverse, and please everyone know that I'm only speaking for myself as a Barkingey woman. Lots of people may not agree with the things that I say, but for me, I really see that our knowledge is held in our communities. And a lot of the time there's an idea in non-Indigenous realms that you can take this knowledge and just sort of sprinkle it on top, or that one person might be the conduit for you to open up all of that knowledge and be able to use it. Now, that word use, I hear a lot about Indigenous knowledge and take as well. And I'm really attuned to the language that people are utilising in in how they talk about Indigenous knowledge and why we need it and why it needs to be implemented. And it's a lot to do with, I think, this false perception that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and knowledge can reverse climate change. Mm. Um, And yeah, that's a really big statement and perhaps that's a bit silly to say, but I do see that a lot of people are talking about it as though it's this panacea, but really what needs to happen if we do want to include Indigenous people and knowledge in a way that is meaningful and actually will have real-time outcomes that are very powerful, is that we actually have to realise that this knowledge resides within communities, not individuals. And so really what needs to happen if we are going to find ways to respect and be able to incorporate this knowledge in a meaningful way is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities need to be in the driver's seat. We are so often consulted and we are so often in the back seat, especially when it comes to management of country and really the way wider Australian society even connects with and understands our knowledge. It's always this sort of little thing on the side. Mm. Um, But as Uncle Brendan Kennedy said in our book, you know, we're not the garnish. We're the main meal and we always have been. And so I really tried to highlight in the book ways in which institutions, for example, can't just throw open their doors and say, oh, no, you're allowed in here now without fundamentally changing their practices, but also the ways in which our knowledge don't work within Western systems. We are extremely collaborative as people. And guess what? That's really smart. Because if all of the people in your group who hold the knowledge are all together and something happens and they're all wiped out, that knowledge is wiped out. There's a reason why our knowledges have lasted longer than, you know, any other living culture's knowledges, and we know that through oral traditions, that unfortunately we've had to hold up against Western science. But we know that some of the stories that people have on country in Australia are more than 30,000 years old, because guess what? That colour didn't did didn't happen in that star you know, it happened 30,000 years ago or things that have happened on country are being calibrated and understood as these oral traditions actually have value. So I think our ways of doing things also need to be incorporated and the only way to do that is actually empowering our communities. Mm. Um, And so everything that happens in the institution, especially at the uni, is completely alien to how we do things. It's this individual pursuit of excellence. If I was a smart academic and I wanted to, you know, really make a lot of money and have a very, very successful career, I would need to sort of focus on being the expert, the person at the pinnacle who everyone goes to. That's sort of, to me, my perception of how knowledge works within academia. Um, You are expected to be at the top. But in my culture, you know, if you walk into a room and tell people that you're an expert on something and you know everything, they would kill themselves laughing. It's such (laughs) a ridiculous notion. And we all know that we have our own part of the story within our cultural systems and we're not supposed to know everything and nor do we have a right to. Mm. And so that's why it's been important to me to collaborate as much as possible because I was always trying, most of the time, not very successfully, to make the university find opportunities within my engagement with them where they could be reflexive, and work out ways that they could actually make room in a way that that actually has you know tangible outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities. Sorry I've gone on a crazy tangent Amy I'm still recovering from no. COVID and my brain <laughs> going oh. in circles at the moment. It makes total I hope sense. I your question.
0: No, you definitely oh, did. <laughs> and it certainly is reflected in that chapter that you're talking about there. You're talking about those words that are used, like use, take. It is a very exploitative or extraction-based kind of perspective. And as you say, like an add-on to a Western system. It's just kind of here, we're just going to slip you into our existing way of doing things. All of what you've said makes absolute sense and I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it to us in such a way. It must be such a huge burden really to have to carry that in a such a big institution. And no doubt it's an experience that many First Nations peoples must have. And I wanted to, I guess, yes. yeah, draw out just a little bit more about that in particular because you you give some examples, especially in the plant. Area where you say that too often you've been contacted by younger scholars wanting to do research in this plant's area, and that they've been told by experts that they were advised they're going to have to go up north to quote unquote traditional people or they won't find anything of worth, anything new that hasn't, you know, been quote unquote discovered yet. Uh, And, you know, these are people who perhaps are looking at communities not up north but in southeastern Australia, as you say. Could you share with us some of those? thoughts and, you know, your particular area, as you say, has been about urban plants and how there's also an assumption that that knowledge is just lost, But clearly it's not. You know, could you talk about some of these misguided views about Aboriginal knowledge and how it's accessed or treated?
1: Yeah, sure. So I wrote about that in the book because I wanted people to think about how we resource knowledge in communities. And so often, and I'm not saying that, um, you know, I'm not saying that too much research is happening up north. I would never say that because I know all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia really need resourcing to be able to um, really push back against the ongoing circumstance of colonisation. But for me, one thing that has just smacked me in the face nonstop for a really long time um, as a South Eastern Aboriginal woman is this idea that our culture is lost due to colonisation or that there's, you know, just this kind of salvage operation going on where we just have to, like, get what we can and try and save it. And unfortunately, that narrative sort of really exists, you know, as an idea that it's non-Aboriginal people who have to salvage this information and and try and hold it. And it really, uh, to me, it, like, harks back to dying race theories that were really prevalent in Australia and unfortunately have had catastrophic outcomes that continue to affect people today. This idea that we're not capable and robust as human beings and that idea of smoothing the dying pillow which um, lots of people who've studied history will understand but it was this idea that Aboriginal people basically were going to die out and so um, people just really had to salvage what they could while they could and that's You know, it's caused so much damage, but I actually see that idea still, this idea that our culture is not strong. And when we sort of, I guess, have that false perception, that stereotype, that real Aboriginal people are out in the bush or in more traditional communities, i.e. communities that look traditional from those looking from the outside, more than the way we function here in the South East, it really starts a cycle where people go, oh, well, there's nothing to see there and then the resources don't go there and then those communities then miss out because people are being directed to other areas. And I think more and more, thank goodness, people are understanding that everywhere in Australia, whether urban or remote, is an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander place if it's up north Mm. um, within that area. And there's just this idea, I think, that urban areas, culture is lost, but urban areas are still a cultural landscape because there is no place in Australia that does not belong to one or more groups who are still fighting for it, who are still fulfilling their cultural obligations in any way they can, despite the ongoing harm that colonisation continues to inflict. And so that work that I was doing, um, looking at plants in urban areas, was wonderful in lots of ways because I could see people's minds opening up about what, what an Aboriginal place is, because no matter where you are in this place we call Australia today, you're an Aboriginal land and, and, and or Torres Strait Islander land. And I think that fundamental understanding is something that can be missing. And so it's wonderful to see some of the projects that are happening, you know, in more recent times where traditional owner groups in urban areas are actually having a greater voice and people are understanding the work that they are doing to keep country healthy. Um, and there's examples of that most certainly on the country that I'm very lucky to live and work on, which is Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country, where Wurundjeri mob are doing some incredible projects, including being part of the Willapkin-Birurrung-Murran Act, which is a way of really looking at the Birurrung from an Aboriginal perspective, not broken up into 11 or more different councils that can have all different ideas about how to manage that waterway and what's important in terms of not you know, letting it get polluted and become a sewer, but actually seeing it as a whole, as a living being that needs to be protected with laws that are overarching, the way that we have them in our society. We don't silo things and break them up into little groups. We understand that everything is very interconnected. And so it's been really good, the shifts that are happening, but I still see that it's not enough because I really... um, I see that prevailing idea in in projects and in the way people talk and especially in academia about what's actually happening in urban areas and how important it is to to put resources into it and to collaborate with people um, as opposed to sort of this idea of being the great white academic hunter finding something new, you know, and so much there's so there's so many problematic ideas about being Like I said before, at the peak of your knowledge, there's this idea that you you have to go up north and, yeah, it it takes resources away from people basically and that's why it irks me more than anything. But I think Mm. the other problem is, is that in the urban environment, it's very difficult for people to understand that it's a cultural landscape because there's all these concrete and buildings. But people also have to understand that the people whose country all of those buildings are on still have their stories that have been passed down over thousands of generations and country is still alive and no matter what you do to her and how much you go over her, she holds her stories and also country holds all knowledge. So whilst these interventions to those outside of our culture might seem finite and, you know, utterly catastrophic, it's important for people to understand that these are still our cultural landscapes and those stories remain and they always will because they've been here too long to be wiped out in the last 200 and whatever years it is. So I really enjoyed telling stories of plants within an urban context but also interacting with people who wanted to know more about Indigenous knowledge and especially young people like children can have an understanding about whose country they're on and the knowledge that's held by those mobs just by teaching them about different plants that that Aboriginal people have been interacting with over time and how absolutely innovative and clever we have been in that we can take things that are completely and utterly poisonous and take them through often, you know, several nuanced processes that we have worked out through the longest time imaginable of experimenting and watching and replicating, which is science, and be able to turn that resource into something that we can actually eat or use as medicine that's incredibly beneficial to our mobs. That's how we've stayed on country. We haven't had to leave when country is really, really contracted because we know that we can use seeds and we've developed grinding stones. And even when all the animals go away and there's no water or, you know, um, we have an ice age, we're able to to stay on country. And that innovation is part of how we've all survived colonisation. And so it's really important for people to remember these words traditional are problematic because we are still practising our culture. It might not look like what you think it does. And plenty of things happen backstage as well, and people need to understand that as well so much we're expected to be extremely performative as Aboriginal people mm. and get up and shake a leg. But there's plenty of things that we're doing within our community, um, like I say, backstage, to keep things strong and to keep those opportunities to pass knowledge and to have intergenerational learning. So I think people... I really talk about the architecture of people's perception and that's about, you know, what you've been taught is what you know and that's the lens through which you see the world. And that's really what English Sky was a lot to do with, was that we need to understand more, take time to educate ourselves and use some of the incredible resources that are all around us today, Aboriginal writers, filmmakers, speakers, to educate ourselves and to understand more about whose country we're on and their perspectives of country and to understand that we also all, black and white, have a responsibility to country and... That's why I've really loved my work with plants. I think it brings people into a relationship with country and it excites them and they start looking at the world around them in a more, I hope, connected way because so often we're kind of floating a bit above country, especially in urban areas. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, it's important to connect because then we, when we connect properly and we learn more and we understand the place that we're on, the country that we're on, it means that we can fulfil our cultural, our custodial obligations. So even if you're not an Aboriginal person, you still have custodial obligations. This is your home.
0: Yeah gosh unfortunately we've run out of time Zena. but I am so grateful to you for taking the time to just take us through a little bit of what you cover in this book with Leslie and Michael Sean because there's so much in here and it is eye-opening for me and I'm sure for many others just as this conversation has been and I really do hope that people can check out this book Plants and also Emu Sky Online, as well as the Indigenous Plant Use booklet that you put up there, which you can Google just that title and your name, Zena Cumston, and it comes up because it's so useful, as you've described, for communities. I'm so grateful for you chatting with us today. I hope I can check in with you again and talk about more of this because I feel like we've just started the conversation, um, but I'm really grateful to you, as (laughs) I said, and thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's really been wonderful to hear your perspectives.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amy. And yeah, it's, it was incredible to collaborate with Michael Sean Fletcher and Leslie Head. So I hope people can check out the book. Thank you sure. so much for having me.
0: Oh, a pleasure, a pleasure. I've just been chatting with Zena Cumpston, Barkanji woman. Uh, she's a writer, researcher and curator. And you can check out her book with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher called Plants, Past, Present and Future, which is out now through Thames and Hudson. I can't recommend it enough.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: And it is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto this programme filmmaker and journalist Carl Malacunas. Carl is the writer, producer, and director of a documentary film called Delicado. It was recently screened as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. It's also been screened across the world and is still being screened at the moment across the world. It's so vital, I think, this topic and this subject. It's something which evokes a lot of emotion i know for myself having just watched it but also for those who will have already watched it and no doubt even for carl who was making it so we're going to be talking about the environmental land defenders on the island of palawan in the philippines where they're protecting some of the most beautifully diverse and old rainforests in the world as well as of course the seas the oceans and the fish that make up that beautiful island Obviously, it's under threat from illegal logging, illegal fishing and other types of extractive mining activity. So without further ado, I welcome Carl onto the program to discuss this fascinating documentary with us, Delicado. Hi there, Carl, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Thanks, Amy. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really, really wonderful to chat with you. And when I watched the trailer, I've got to say, I was gripped straight away and thought, oh my gosh, I have to watch this movie because it seemed like a thriller the way that these instances occur, where these land defenders, volunteers essentially, seem to be going out into the forest, the rainforest in Palawan in the Philippines to seize uh, chainsaws, to literally stop illegal logging in their tracks and and it seems like such a dangerous activity to be involved in and as the documentary very much shows it truly is very dangerous and that's the really the title of this film so I wonder could you just tell us a little bit about how you came across this subject matter yourself and the island of Palawan.
2: Sure, Amy. Well, I'm a journalist by by trade, and uh, in my day job, I'm still a journalist. Uh, I work for the French news agency Agence France-Presse. Back in 2011, I was the Manila Bureau Chief for AFP, and I ended up living in the Philippines for almost eight years as Manila Bureau Chief. And uh, back then, I wanted to go down and do a story on ecotourism uh, in Palawan. It was really uh, an excuse to go down and see this incredible place. Palawaan is the is, it's called the Last Frontier. Uh, it's home to the last great rainforests. It's, um, you know, one of the most the most biodiverse uh, waters in the world. They call it the Amazon of the seas. The limestone cliffs and the, the blue clear waters they so they're backdrops for Hollywood movies. I think one of the Born Identity films uh, ended in uh, in Palawan. So it's an incredibly beautiful place. I was going to go down there and and just do a pretty innocuous story on ecotourism. And the environmental campaigner uh, who I was uh, in contact with was shot in the head and killed um, a few days before I was about to go down. Uh, So I went down to investigate his murder instead. And while I was there, I met a whole group of environmental defenders putting their lives on the line. Um, as, as you said in your introduction, you know, uh, what, how? what? There are these people going into the forest, um, barefoot, trying to trying to take chainsaws from illegal loggers. Who are they? What are they doing? That was my immediate reaction. I ended up doing a, a piece of journalism for, um, for AFP um, on, on that a, a decade ago. Um, always had in my mind, it, you know, it just seems like it's, it, you know, there's something more in it. Um, as a journalist, um, I've, I've been... Uh, involved in daily journalism in, in one form or another, immediate news, uh, since I was a 17-year-old copyboy at the Herald Sun <laughs> newspaper in Melbourne. And um, I'd always uh, dreamt of wanting to do something uh, a bit more enduring, a bit more impactful uh, than, than daily journalism. And that's how the journey began. Uh, I really didn't expect that, you know, 10 years later, I would have, I would have made a full documentary and, uh, and will be here today.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounded like such a a long commitment, you know, a labor of true passion, because as you say, you found out about this in 2011 and I believe you started filming in 2017 and then, you know, you were going back and continuing to film for a number of years. That really does take a a huge span across your lifetime. You know, this is something that some people do dedicate their lives to certain projects, but that is a, a really substantial one. So you must have felt very strongly about this topic being so you know not only just newsworthy but genuinely you had something to offer to share to try and I guess shine a light on this issue and I wonder you know what were your reflections when you were deciding to take on a project like this?
2: I guess for myself I've been driven through journalism, one way or another, to try and tell these stories. This is a, a longer version of, of, I guess, what I've tried to dedicate my my life to. I've been sort of doing sort of conflict reporting and and um, you know, various forms of sort of in depth environmental reporting uh, over the years, and a lot of, I guess, human rights reporting. Um, and this and has sort of been the culmination of all that. Yeah. So I've I've certainly had my my, my heart in particularly environment and, and climate reporting and so I guess as I said I always wanted to feel like I could do a bit more have a bit more of an impact and then as a journalist um, and as a storyteller when I met these incredible people and not just what they did but the the the, 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 the characters how you know they' just how strong and brave and courageous they were I knew there was something more that Um, that could be told in a a longer uh, version of of essentially a piece of journalism. Um, And so that's why I, I kept committing to it.
0: The characters in this film are so engaging. So I don't know, there's something very compelling about how they communicate their passion and their feeling for the earth and for the environment. And it really does shine through you interview um, people who are truly connected to the land as they say you know that they they are kind of just interconnected with the land their feelings are with the earth you know there's some really beautiful reflections on the connection that indigenous peoples in the Philippines have with the land and I wondered was that something that really shone through to you in your interactions with attorney Bobby Chan and also with Tata and Nieves, like, you know, what were the kind of things that really struck you about the way that they were speaking about their island of Palawan, but also that kind of deeper connection to the earth that they had?
2: I guess one of the things that most immediately comes to mind is Cap Rubinazaga, um, who was the environmental defender um, who was murdered uh, during the course of our, our filming. And on my first uh, filming trip there, I met Cap, and we and we slept in the forest together. And you know, we we talked about why he was doing this. And you know, he um, he looked up at these big trees, and he said, you know, if if I don't work to save them, they're just not going to be here for when my daughters grow up and have children of their own. And if they're not here, they won't have the watersheds. They won't have the um, the protection against the typhoons, against the storms, it was a matter of survival for him and a matter of survival for 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 his community, and I felt that really, really strongly in very in in various ways. Um, it's it's not a, you know, environmental activism where you know I guess mm-hmm. you know someone like more myself would be thinking oh, I'm going to go and try and do something you know to su- preserve the environment because I want to I want to be good. This is just so visceral. It's so you know, it's it's so immediate. It's, it's just a, a real matter of survival for for, for the people of Palawan. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I really I really felt that in sort of in in, in every way. Tata is the other, um, you know, one of the the, you know, the other leaders of the parent forces. You know, and, and and he's again, he just feels you know. He talks about his granddaughter, and you know, he and we spent a lot of time with him and his granddaughter, and he's he knows that if if he doesn't do his work it's all just going to be gone for his 8 or 9 year old granddaughter
0: yeah it does sound like it's so existential this issue and one of the other ways that it's brought home is um your interview with Remedios Cabral you know she was reflecting on the transformation of Palawan as becoming this tourist destination a place where you know business people were trying to invest their money infrastructure being developed in the mountains you know those roadways are becoming more prolific and she was saying essentially that she'd been told by a man called the father of the province that because she wouldn't sell land to these specific people they apparently said to her the father will have you killed if you don't sell this and she says I will fight for the land because it has belonged to my ancestors for thousands of years and the way that we feel for the land is different. Our feelings are fused with the earth. The earth is like our parent. The forest is the lifeblood of the Indigenous people. And that is another example that kind of brought it home to me. There is this very strong conflict between those who want to protect their home or need to protect their home and the others who are seeking to transform Palawan into something far more commercial and larger than it currently is. And I wondered, could you explore that a little bit more for us and explain the context, the political context of the situation for the people of Palawan?
2: So, that incredible person that, that you just quoted, Mimi Cabral, is uh, an Indigenous leader um, you know, from the Taupanoa community in and around El Nido, which is the main tourist town of, of, of Palawan. Um, it's a gold mine for, for, for tourism development. And um, the Indigenous communities are losing their land, um, whether it's through force or through, you know, through sales um, from a very powerful interest, having the ability to be able to to buy the lands from Indigenous people uh, at very cheap prices in whatever way, and the Indigenous people losing their land for development. And they're essentially facing a a losing battle, Um, you know, in in Palawan, they are, Palawan has sort of been 20, 30 years behind the development of the rest of the country, you know, in some ways and for various reasons. You know, and part of it is because of its geographical remoteness. Um, and you can see what's happened in throughout, you know, Mindanao, southern Philippines and, you know, up in the Cordilleras, the mountain ranges of the northern Philippines where development has, has come. And Mimi Cabral and her community are sort of on the, the, the last line of, of defence of the last great rainforest of, of, of the Philippines. So, um, you know, in the preceding scene, there's um, Bobby Chan, the environmental lawyer, is um, is speaking to a whole group of Indigenous uh, people. And uh, another lady stands up and says to, says to Bobby, you know, I've... Um, now, someone's come and, and offered to buy my land. Um, is a you know they t- they tell me it's for tourism or, or it's for coconuts. Um, I'm not really sure. What do I do? And to me that was a really sort of powerful moment in terms of the, you know, the power imbalance. You know, the um within this uh, community. You almost got the sense that. Without Bobby's guidance or, you know, and others may have just ended up selling their land to powerful people who have come, whether it's through the offer of money, or as Mimi says in the film, you know, through threats and intimidation. So you just wonder how much of it's going on. Um, and so... We present the um, the governor um, of the of the province. You know, on the on on the flip side there, who at one point was the richest elected politician in the Philippines, not just um, on a uh, provincial level but on a national level. Incredibly rich, powerful um, businessman. He initially um, made his money when logging was legal in the Philippines. He had the sole logging concession um, across Palawan in the 1980s under the under the then dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. He's gone on to have logging concessions throughout Southeast Asia and involved in, in many other industries. Uh, we asked for interviews with the governor um, and he, he declined. But we endeavoured to show his side of the story, and you know, in, in an interview with with a, another with a local media outlet, he talks about his vision of development um, and his vision for Palawan, and he's talking about the roads that he can build, and you know, how he doesn't want Palawan to sit idle. He wants it to to be part of the greater Philippine economy, and that's the that's the battle that's going on, um, you know, in, in Palawan, and whether it's for tourism whether it's for the the uh, mining industry or whether it's for, plant, for plantations, uh, development is happening at a very fast pace now.
0: Yeah, when he compared it to the Hawaii of the United States, making it a similar kind of tourist destination, that, that really hit me because obviously that is a, a very scary thought, um, especially given how beautifully pristine it, it looks in the film, apart from all the logging uh, that's been going on. If we talk about Governor Alvarez for just one moment, I know that he had to finish up his terms as governor because he'd exhausted, it seems, the number of terms he was allowed to to run for. But he was going to run for the second district of Palawan in May this year, and I believe he was elected to that position
2: that's right. So the uh, the requirements there are uh, constitutional term limits. So he could serve three three year terms as governor. He was so he was required by the Constitution to uh, to step aside. Uh, so he uh, so he instead uh, jumped over to uh, to go into the National Congress to represent you know, the, the, the the southern district of Palawan, uh, still um, a very, you know, Holding the reins of power to 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 a large extent in in Palawan.
0: Right. It was really interesting to look at how things are developing, even now politically um, in Palawan, but the Philippines more broadly. And we might just address that towards the end of the chat. But let's go back to um, the main characters. Something that comes through is um, Attorney Bobby Chan having this very strong connection to religion and spirituality, and how that influences his way of seeing the world, but also especially his mission and his team's mission. And what is so lovely is, you know, how he talks about how they have like no funding, and it's probably better I don't have much funding at all. Um, he just seems to have such a wonderful personality, as does Tatar and all the others that you've just discussed. And I don't know, I wanted to understand from you starting to, as a filmmaker, embed yourself in this group and to get to know the different people in the team. My understanding is that you did very much go out into the forest with that team You know, when we're looking at some of the filming techniques, I was trying to figure out what you'd done and, I don't know, it kind of looked like there was a camera on a helmet sometimes and, you know, so there was a little bit of shaky cam and, you know, but there's also some beautiful kind of drone shots going on across the forest. And I wondered if you could talk with us about some of the practicalities of filming this film but also, of course, what seems to be such a beautiful group, a a beautiful bond that the men had together uh, when they're out into the forest.
2: So the, the bonds that they have is one of the um, was one of the intangibles I think of, of what drives them you know they can talk about you know environmentalism and, and doing things for, 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 for their for their for their families and the future generations they're a very tight-knit bunch of, 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 of guys as well and and they the um, the the bond that they have when they're out there and the sense of adventure that they have, uh, they do love being together out there as well. Um, and um, so, but to, I guess, take you back to, to Bobby and and how all that sort of came about and sort of relationships with, with Bobby and, you know, how that went on to filming. So, you know, I sort of met Bobby in 2011 when I was investigating this story and, you um, and then I went back a few years later again, and met him again. And you know, we we I we did another piece of journalism. And then when I when it went back in twenty seventeen, I was you know I was uh, you know I was sitting with him on a Friday night. I'd taken a sort of a week of holidays from from work. And he says, "All right, well, if you really want to do this." Get out now! Uh, the boys are going to get up into the into the forest tonight. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we ate some shellfish in the in, in their office, and uh, said, I okay, get get into the van. And so you know, jumped into the van with uh, with this man who I would who would then learn was Tata and Cap Ruben, um, and uh, and others, and drove off into the night. And we didn't I didn't really know what was going on. And uh, then um, you know, we slept on we slept in a in a village. You know for a couple of hours, and then I found myself hiking into the forest, and then they were then they were sleeping in the forest, and um, and you could sense this sort of sense of camaraderie amongst them. And you know, I, I don't speak Tagalog very much, and they didn't speak very much English, but they were looking after me, they were they were they were uh, caring for me. And Tata, this guy in the front, was just doing these hand signals, and he was sort of you know like you could just sense that you know, he was you know. Uh, leading this group and you could sense this was a man you could have confidence in. And so we hiked for a couple of days in the forest and I you know, grew to know these guys really, really well. And that was just a and a wonderful thing for me. I, I you know it was one of the most special things, you know, being with these being with these guys. And so we emerged out of the out of the forest and you know filmed a chainsaw confiscation and came back down to to the you know, office, to the office where Bobby was and Bobby said, "Well, you know, um, he was elated that someone had filmed a chainsaw sort of confiscation." And he said, "And he said that uh, you, know, you know journalists have been coming around here for ten years, and they always come and they're always interested. No one's ever gone into the forest with with, with, with my boys." And from then on, there was this sort of this, uh, this this bond between us as well. And I guess that's how the sort of the relationship began, you know, with Bobby and Tata and the rest of them. And so yes, yeah, so then that went on to develop into spending months in the forest uh, over a number of years. Um, And that was, uh, going to the second part of your question, sort of how do we do it? It was, we worked out pretty quickly, it really, we had to be very light on the ground um, so for the vast bulk of the filming, um, it was myself and Tom Bannigan, a cinematographer from Sydney, who I knew from sort of journalism days. Um, we, were, we were working in China together uh, many years ago. Tom's a war correspondent, tough as nails. Um, I just knew that you know who was it going to be able to bring into the forest, who who would be able to hack it with these guys, and that was Tom. So Tom and I just spent a long time in the forest with with them, um, and. You know, we slept with them, we ate with them, um, and so that's how we sort of had two cameras, and then we also had some GoPros on the on the guys as well, and so that's why you got that mix between uh, sort of this uh, incredibly well shot footage and um, and the the hard reality of the of the GoPros, and then we managed to be able to film this beautiful drone footage um, because. We couldn't stop to take, put, obviously put the drone up when they're going on these missions to try and catch these illegal loggers. But quite often, these missions—most well, most of the time, actually—these missions don't end up in a confiscation. They hike for a couple of days, and the uh, you know it starts to rain, and the loggers go down the hill, or the the assets just get the information wrong, um, or the, there's been information reported to the loggers, and you know that, you know, that these guys are, are coming into the forest, and they go. So anyway, so once we've once they determined that you know the loggers weren't there and there was no longer a security threat, we were able to bring the the drone up and and shoot these incredible areas. So there was we we got positives out of the I guess the so-called failures of of those confiscation missions. It's
0: so wonderful. I love the mixture of those camera techniques because you get everything. You get the immediacy of the situation. But also that really striking, because of the drone footage, you get a real sense of the devastation of some of that logging as well. And I just think it's the that's probably the only way you can see it. But also, I just remember one of those panning shots where you're panning up to this just giant tree that's just so huge. And I don't know, it just kind of gives you this overwhelming sense of awe and respect for what they're protecting. So yeah, I really, I really appreciated that. I wanted to talk a little bit more and tease out a little bit more some of those missions, just because I think for those listening who may not have yet seen the film, they might think, well, what are the dangers of trying to stop this? You know, because we in Australia, you might see protesters in a tree sit in a native forest, but there isn't the same level of danger as if you were doing this in Palawan. And One of the scenes you see, you know, three men with guns, potentially even knives, it's kind of hard to see from afar. And this group of defenders eventually go to their shack once they've left and you know, they're looking through the shack and then they're kind of finding someone who they can confiscate a chainsaw from. And what really struck me was the way that Tata engaged with the people who were actually logging. The way that he was so I don't know, reassuring and diplomatic and understanding when they weren't putting up a fight, when they were complying and and also the way he was understanding that a lot of people are motivated by poverty and that's the reason why they're engaging in these kind of activities and I guess following the lead of kind of higher up people. And I wondered if you could reflect on that a little bit given obviously you had such intimate knowledge of Tatar and the way that he interacts with those subjects, you know, it just comes across as, I don't know, he's just got some very special power, some very um, special way of putting everyone at ease, including the people that they're, you know, trying to stop.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was, uh, I'm glad that uh, that that's come out because that was one of the most incredible parts of it, you know, his empathy for the people that he was confronting um, and not just Tata, but all the others um, have 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 this empathy, um, and that's partly, largely because they are from those communities themselves. Um, in that final scene, you see the um, the illegal logger sitting on the tree that's just been cut down, and being surrounded by Tata and the and, and the boys, and Tata's foot's on the on the on the log, and it's in a flip flop, and the loggers. Foot is on the log, log and it's on a flip flop. You can see both their feet. You can see their toes. You can see how they've been walking barefoot in flip flops through the mountains, both of them, you know, all their lives. And you know, they're they're they're, they're both the men of the earth, um, and they're both come from very poor backgrounds. So his empathy for them all was 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 really really powerful. It the way that he interacted as well was also an important survival technique uh, that they have when they go in, their, their first instinct or their first action is to try and defuse the conflict, to defuse the situation. Um, another time you see Tata make a joke with one of the illegal fishermen. and it's
0: That was very funny. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then just after he makes a joke, you can see him look over his shoulder and his eyes are just still just, just scanning to see what threats are around him. Mm. So what they do is they try and defuse the situation, diffuse the conflict. And then sort of going back into both empathy and survival, they're not mutually Exclusive. One of the things is they don't, um, you know, Tata and, and Bobby don't press charges against the actual illegal loggers or the illegal fishermen. They confiscate the equipment. And then, you know, if there are going to be further, you know, legal actions, it's against the, the you know, the high, the highers up um, that, that they go for. So they don't try and punish these uh, illegal loggers. Uh, they understand who they are and where they're coming from. And that's also, I think, part of how they again, you know, can, you know they, they still have the support. They're almost like Robin Hoods of the, of of their communities. So they still have the support of, of of the people that they're going into. It's the it's the you know the the village captains. It's the businessmen that, that are the trouble. And in, in in regards to the dangers, well, you saw, I you know, said Cap Rubin, who we were with, was shot and, and was shot and killed um, on another confiscation a couple of months later in the exact same area he was going in, and and the two loggers just you know, and they shot him. But one of the other dangers, you know, they've had you know, uh, 13 of the parent forces have been killed um, over the years and uh, they're not always or even necessarily mostly killed in the forest. It's afterwards uh, when these loggers go back out of the, the forest and they go back to the boss and, hey boss, you know, um, sorry, uh, I've got to report our chainsaws uh, been confiscated. By who? Well. These guys, it's because um, Tata and the boys leave a seizure receipt and they say, oh, it's, it's the PNNI, it's this guy, it's, you know, it's Tata, whoever. And so then these businessmen target the parent forces within their communities. And I think that's an even, even much, it's a much greater threat. And it, when you when you know that it's not just the immediate threat of being in the forest, but they have to live with this threat day after day, year after year now that they could get killed at any time that's when you start to really appreciate their courage.
0: Totally. And something that Bobby said, you know, he he echoes this a lot throughout the film is, you know, why are we doing this? Because no one else will. You know, we're doing the job that the government won't do. It's really so shocking. And I guess one of the scenes in the film that really got me was towards the end when they were thinking about, well, where do we go next? What Where do we focus our energy? Because obviously I'm sure there's so many different missions they could choose. There was this reflection by Tata saying, since Cap died, they've had the upper hand. Rumours go around that we seem to be afraid to go back there. And they say, if we try to return, we'll lose another comrade. No one enters that area anymore, not the environmental department, not even the police. When we enter this area, it's now marked as their territory. We'll be trespassing when we enter their area. And um, he says, for me, my final thought is he was killed there. If we can avenge him, we should, but we need to be 100% prepared. There was just this kind of moment of, I understand now why they're doing what they're doing. It's not just like it's for the earth, but it's for their mates. There's so much caught up in their motives, you know, as to why they're doing what they're doing, what missions they're choosing and, and like how much personal feeling is involved but also how much strategy, as you say, like they're very prepared, then calculated, they're not going to go in and and do the wrong thing and put themselves at risk. But I don't know, I just wondered if you could reflect on that scene when you were filming it. Did it have anything for you? Did that spark, you know, any certain kind of response for you? Because I don't know, there was just something in that when I was watching it that it just felt like this very galvanising moment of we're going to do this and we're going to go back to the place where our close friend has been
2: killed. I feel sort of emotional just listening to to, to that again, and um, their say their courage is I can't comprehend it. And I would say that as powerful and as inspiring as um, that little scene was, they do that almost every day. They went there up to where Cap Ruben was murdered into into those forests. You know, there was 12 other times that they were doing something similar, you know, down in Bataraza in southern Philippines where, uh, you know, there's um, it's uh, a lot of the, um, you know, uh, Islamic militants, uh, from, you know, Southern Philippines, um, uh, are embedded in, 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 those communities. Um, there have been people who have, you know, Westerners who have been kidnapped and, and killed in, in that vicinity. Uh, it's just lawless. Um, two of their men were shot and killed on a motorbike, you know, as, as, as I said before, they were marked after to, to stop logging in that community. They go back down there regularly to, to do confiscation missions. Mm. Um, regularly, it's it's just incredible. And you know when then when I talk about Nunez Rosento, the the mayor of 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 uh, El Nido, who's our our sort of third main participant in 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 the film, and she is placed on the the drug list of President Duterte. You know, thousands of people have been murdered under Duterte's drug war. The president goes on national TV and curses her and threatens to kill her and says you know I will kill you um, and because she is fighting her environment very environmental battle in a different but equally courageous way to the guys mm. um, she's trying to stop the, those developers that we were talking about earlier and you know when she's threatened when she's placed on the narco list and the and the president threatens to kill her I would have walked away. I would have given up. Um, You know, if Tata and the boys are going, you know, in to avenge their, you know, their mate's death, I would have given up. And I think most of us would have. And I still struggle to understand how just brave and courageous these people are.
0: I'm so glad you brought up Nieves because that's where I was going to go next because she's so inspiring. The way that she speaks in those community meetings is so galvanizing. I can see why she's such a great politician. You know, she's just so oh, passionate. I don't know, just genuine, a truly authentic person. And um, yeah, when you see that Duterte footage and her kind of responding and then praying with her family, I mean, that is literally when I would have just said, "Okay, yeah, we're done." <laughs> like, I, I agree with you. And she's just going, "No, we'll stay strong and we'll stay the course." And she's basically in this uh, election campaign, as we see in the film. So she's quite literally campaigning and, as you show, being followed by police. And, you know, there's a lot of intimidation and threats against her, as you show as well. There are so many parts or challenges to her story, one clearly being the lack of fair elections in the sense that there are allegations of vote buying and that being the reason why she wasn't re-elected as mayor and no doubt it would have been so heartbreaking, as we see, to face up to that, these kind of strategies where different candidates are potentially backed by commercial interests and have that funding and resourcing that, you know, local grassroots campaigners don't have. But also, you know, her resilience. I, I don't know. I wondered if you could reflect on the ways that she has continued to be inspiring because she still wants to be, as she said, governor of Palawan and the first woman governor as well. You know, it's so exciting to see her speak. And uh, yeah, I just wondered if you could reflect on her journey, not just in the film, but even after, you know, and what she's still doing right now.
2: So we met Neves at Cap Rubin's funeral. So uh, we were, were there was a basketball court, She's standing next to Cap's body at the wake and, you know, everyone's sort of, you know, hypnotised by the speech of some very, very charismatic, powerful woman. i thought, Who, who's that? And then, um, you know, a few hours later, um, we're at the, at the cemetery and they're bearing Cap and Nieves is standing around guiding, managing the funeral and looking after Cap's daughters, and there were tears running down her eyes and she was so, knew she was a politician, but right now you knew that she was uh, 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 someone grieving for for someone she cared very much about as well. And it turns out that her and Cap had a long relationship of uh, defending the environment together, though they, they've been friends for a long time. And so then, when you know, um, I just wanted to get to know her more, and sat down, had an interview with her, and you know, she says, "Oh, you know, I'm on the, I've been told I've been on the drugs list. Oh, I've been told on Duterte's drugs list." And you know, for people who don't know. Thousands of people have been murdered uh, under Duterte's drug war. Uh, the you know, International Criminal you know, uh, Court is investigating Duterte uh, for what could be crimes against humanity. There were other mayors who were placed on Duterte's drug list who we show in the film were shot and killed. So then Nevis talks about this and she goes, "Yeah, so OK, so you know, we're having this for the first interview. And so well, what are you doing about it? And it was all about how she was just going to continue fighting to protect the environment. And, you know, there are these illegal loggers, there's these developers who are bringing the, the illegal logs into you know into these resorts and I need to stop them. So, yeah, but what about the drug list? Oh, you yeah, know, I'll, I'll work on that as well. It just, it was just incredible. And then over a couple of years of filming uh, Nieves, it was always in the shadows. Nieves was saying, you know, well, you know, I've been told I'm on the drug list, you know, uh, well, you know, but there was nothing official, of course, and this is where there's, there's just no sense of justice. And then as mayor of El Nido, uh, she was told she lost her police powers because of the uh, because she was placed on the drug list. And so she's shown me a document that says uh, she's lost her police powers. And as a documentary maker, I'm thinking, OK, this is strong, but how do I actually show that she's on the drug list? And then just before the, the May 2019 elections, Duterte gets up on TV and names her. And this was all part of the campaign for you know, the the president and his allies to influence the elections. Uh, it was no coincidence at all that these that these politicians were named just ahead of the elections, and so you know, you know spoiler alert: she loses the, that, that election. And you know, as you said, she vows at the end that she's going to come back, that she's going to be um, governor, the first uh, lady governor of Palawan. Well, three years later, at these last elections um, in May of uh, this year, Yves did uh, come back into the political arena. Um, she sort of lay low for three years, and uh, she. Didn't run again for for the mayor of El Nido. Uh, she didn't go for the governor's position. She went for something in between. Um, it's on the called the, on the Palawan board, um, and she got elected.
0: Oh, wonderful!
2: She's the only sort of environmental candidate, you know, politician pro environment, you know, uh, person on the board, um, and it's for the whole province. Um, and so she is now trying to work to have a. People's consultative council, um, uh, made up of civil society groups um, and environmental groups, who actually work with the government, local governments, to hold them accountable. Um, There's been a model in place by a progressive politician in the Philippines that she's trying to uh, trying to follow. So she's trying to build this grassroots, you know, uh, you know, community back up again. And so she's still there. She's still fighting. And we had this. uh, we just had our Philippine premiere in Manila recently uh, at Cinema Laya. We were the closing festival at, at Cinema La, and um, we brought up uh, Nieves and and Tata and the parent forces up to up to uh, Manila, and um, it was uh, at this um, uh, this cultural centre of the Philippines, which seats eighteen hundred people, and. You know, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. You know, how many people were going to turn? It was a full house. Wow! And then they watched the people watched the film, and then Nieves's name was called out, and Bobby's name was called out, and Tata and Mimi Cabral, the indigenous leader, were called out, and they all walked on stage, and there wasn't a dry eye mm. in the in in in, in the audience, um, and everyone was standing up and clapping and cheering and. Um, It was this amazing moment and Neves sort of gets up on stage and there's a little tear in her eye and then she just raises her fist uh, fist up in the air to the crowd and they all roar. And it was just the most incredible electric moment and it, it made this 10 years of work worth it. It was just incredible.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. It sounds like a rock star reception for people who truly are even better than rock stars. I'm so glad you talk about the reception too because I wanted to reflect on that a little bit and that's probably the best place is, you know, Manila and the Philippines being a very important audience for this film to be seen, and certainly more broadly across the whole country because it is quite a large, expansive country and population. But I, I wondered how have different audiences been receiving this film You know, not just in the Philippines, of course, but of obviously Australia, New Zealand. You're taking it across to Europe and the US. Like, how has this film been received? How have you been received? You know, your work at the moment, and obviously for me, I was you know crying (laughs) in the film, and I defy anyone to not cry during this film because it is very personally affecting but obviously there's a broader movement here there's a broader point to this which is to you know shine a light an investigative journalist's kind of light on this issue so yeah could you share with us some of your observations of the responses you've seen to this documentary?
2: Amy I'm I'm a first-time filmmaker Um, you know for, for nine and a bit years I was making this film not knowing whether it would work, whether it would be a success, Um, I'm just overwhelmed with what's happened um, over the past sort of, you know, six months to a year. We had our, we had a global premiere at a major film festival in Canada at Hot Docs. And then we were, we screened in sort of, you know, in LA and New York in a human rights uh, festival. And we're at, we're at the Sydney Film Festival. We won Sustainable Future Award, uh, one of the major awards there for for films that, you know, that was doing something about the climate emergency. Um, I had to have a, a full house at Melbourne, my, at the Melbourne International Film Festival, my, my, my hometown, it was it's it was incredible. Um, and then. I, I guess I've talked about Manila, but that was the most magical moment. Yeah. It was just, um, and to see not not just because of, of that people who were loving the film, but because of how emotionally they invested that they were in it. And um, you know, and I never wanted to make the film just to make a film. Um, it was always from day one. It was um, to tell a, a bigger story about the environment. I knew um, as, as a journalist, I'd done a lot of reporting that about you know land offenders um, who are uh, being killed in record numbers around the world and whether it's, uh, the Philippines or the Palawan, um, what's going on there, you know, with Bobby and Tata and Nieves, they're the same stories, um, that are occurring in Brazil or Colombia or Honduras or Mexico. And, and I wanted to, I was hoping that this film could maybe be a part of, uh, of, uh, of, of some sort of narrative to help, uh, sort of not just, Raise awareness about what was happening in Palawan, but about land defenders around the world. And uh, we're building a, an impact campaign for the film um, around defending the defenders uh, to help, uh, you know, uh, support and drive support for land defenders and the forests that they protect. Um, and, you know, as part of that, you know, you know, from Manila, you know, we've started to get support for screenings around the Philippines, and we've just started screenings. You know, there was one in the central Philippines for a community that were um, defending their mangroves um, from development, and the film got to show to them, and they said, wow, other people are fighting these battles as well. And, you know, so that's part of the impact campaign. We're trying to um, also into schools and universities and you know then we're also looking at different things on policy levels and and for funding for actually forest rangers. so you know we can hopefully put our guys out of it out of their volunteer jobs and get you know the people who are supposed to be doing it doing it so there's lots of impact that we're trying to build in the philippines um, there's a big anti-corruption conference in Washington later in the year which the film will, will be at you know potentially at the uh, UN Biodiversity um, Summit in in Montreal later in the year there but you know so our film's going to be part of all this conversation and um, you know in a couple of weeks we're going to be screening across homes across America on PBS.
0: Oh congrats.
2: Yeah we're on, we're on POV and on September 26th and um, and POV are helping us to build education toolkits and screening guides so then it can be shown in communities in, in America and then we can use those same toolkits, bring them to the Philippines and um, and continue this conversation beyond the film. So, look, again, to think that, you know, here we are and, and talking to you and having these conversations, you know, a year ago, it just, it was just it's just beyond my comprehension. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, it's um, like, it fills me with so much joy to hear all of those amazing developments because this film deserves to be seen by everyone. In my opinion, it's just so wonderful. Every person who's part of it clearly has played such an important role. And um, Carl, I just want to say such a big thank you to you for pursuing this because we wouldn't be getting to witness this story without you bringing it to us in such a powerful way so a big thank you to you and big congratulations on such an amazing film and all the subsequent work that you're doing right now as well it's it's so inspiring so um, I really hope that everyone listening I know they're going to be dying to see it now it's called Delicado it's uh, written produced and directed by yourself Carl Malacunas. thank you so much Carl for your really generous insights today it's just been a real pleasure
2: oh, it's um, yeah been a, a very uh, important conversation thank you Amy I really, really really appreciate that, that the opportunity.
0: I've just been speaking with Carl Malakunas, and he is, as you heard, the filmmaker, journalist from Melbourne, originally uh, living now in Hong Kong. And the film is called
2: Delicado. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: I'm joined today by Rachel Withers, who is contributing editor to The Monthly. Rachel writes a column online called The Politics, which you can check out on The Monthly's website. And we're going to be talking all things federal politics with a very specific focus on the October budget, which is being delivered tonight by Treasurer Jim Chalmers. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is Labor's first budget in about 10 years. So it is momentous and historic for a range of reasons. It's also a critical moment for the Labor government to put their stamp on what's going to be happening policy-wise for the next at least half a year until we actually have the regular May budget return finally. I think many people will be hoping for a budget in May this time instead of all the other random months we were having before under the coalition. And we'll also might touch on some other issues around federal politics that have been coming up in the last week or so. So I welcome back onto the program, the wonderful Rachel Withers. Hi there, Rachel, and thank you very much for coming back on.
3: Hi, Amy. It's good
0: to be back. And very, very important times because right now there is, I don't know if they're in the lockup yet, but... At 1.30 uh, it starts. There you yeah. go. A lot of people have been remarking, or I'm, and a lot of people, I mean journalists, have been remarking on the fact that this is their bajillionth lockup in the <laughs> last few years. And uh, we were just talking off air, Rachel, about how many budgets we've been covering even in the last two to three years. How many have we had? And what's the status with these budgets? Because I think a lot of people will wonder why we're having an October budget.
3: Yeah, so this October budget is an extra budget that Labor flagged that it would do if it got into office um, to sort of make its own little stamp on the budget for the year. But you're right, it does feel like the gazillionth budget. Um, It's the second one this year. It's actually the fourth in two years because the coalition had an extra one in 2020. So we saw, I think it was an October one in 2020, we saw a regular May one last year, but then this year we've already had a March one <laughs> and an October one. But you're right, you, you yeah. mentioned at the start this is important because it is the first Labor one in a decade. So while it feels like, oh, my God, to those of who cover budgets, we're doing this straight again, um, it is, you know, a really important scene-setting exercise for the Labor government.
0: Exactly. And the last budget I remember watching which was just not that long ago, you know, I was looking at that going, is that it? Like, is that all they were going to put in a budget? Because budgets are not just statements of money and where the money's going, but they are supposed to be statements of where the country's going, what the vision is and how the government is going to get there and, you know, what programs are going to stay, what are going to be cut, where the money is put tells a broader story. And I think the coalition story, In the past, it seems to have been, for example, the last budget. Yeah, (laughs) here's some treats. We're going to cut the fuel excise so that everyone can have cheaper petrol. That was probably the main story of the last Mm -hmm. budget.
3: Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've been told this time around not to expect treats. Uh, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, has been out there laying out that this is going to be a responsible... (laughs) He says responsible, and I think, has there ever been a treasurer who hasn't described the upcoming budget as responsible. (laughs) Um, Nobody ever says this is going to be an irresponsible budget, but he has emphasised that it's going to be a bread and butter budget. It's not going to have anything flashy in it. Um, It's not going to have little uh, cost of living treats, like you mentioned, um, because there are concerns that might actually make the inflationary pressures in the economy worse. So it's not necessarily going to offer any quick fixes but it does actually have some really big spending in it. It's all stuff that was already promised in the election campaign and it's Labor coming through with the money for some of its sick promises. So there's nothing necessarily, well, there's a couple of new things, um, but a lot of the big spending is stuff that we were already expecting and stuff that's really important, like Labor following through on its huge childcare subsidy reforms, Um, it's aged care spending, uh, some cheaper medicine spending. It's stuff that isn't new. It's not money that, like, falls into people's pockets as a little, you know, tax offset or... um, you know, petrol excise cut. But it's, it is it is actually big structural things that are baked into this budget. Um, and we already know the numbers for a lot of those things. So it's not necessarily going to be anything new tonight. And it's something
0: that although we don't get a cheap and quick kind of hit from it, like some people might like, these are things that we will actually have some bearing on people's lives. You know, the changes when you're looking at childcare, for example, that's clearly a big one with the package costing $5.4 billion over the forward estimates, which is four years. So that's a huge thing. I know lots of families struggle to be able to afford childcare. That's why so many predominantly women are not actually working full-time because they end up losing most of their salary to childcare. So there's not really that impetus for the primary carer to go to work.
3: And the other big one that's actually a new announcement, in fact, that I should add, is the paid parental leave changes, uh, which were announced about a week and a half ago um, that are going to increase slowly over time the paid parental leave from 18 weeks up to 26 weeks, it's going to be gradual over, over a few years, but it's also going to make some changes to encourage it to be better shared between partners. There'll be like a bit of a use it or lose it scheme in there probably so that it, it will be ideally shared more equitably between parents. And that was something that the Labor government actually decided, they said, to bring in since the Jobs and Skills Summit of Um. September. God, that was only in September. Yeah. Um, but that was something that actually they said, it, you know, it was so important at the Jobs and Skills Summit, all of these, you know, incredible women economists were saying this is so important and Labor has since said that it was because of that that they've decided to, to go early on this. So that you could call that a treat. It's not it's not like a little $300 in your bank account for mm. everyone, but it, it, it certainly I would think of that as a treat. And it's something that, I mean, a lot of people have been
0: calling for an increase because Australia is well behind on paid parental leave. Like 18 weeks is kind of laughable compared to the rest of the OECD. But one thing that I guess you could say is a criticism of that announcement and that I think has been going on in the background is it's only going to increase by two weeks every year so that we finally get the full 26 weeks in 2026. And I'd thought, In the backdrop of all these discussions of the stage three tax cuts and how much they're going to cost and the fact that they're actually now going to cost even more (laughs) than they were costed in the past, I think it was an example for me of, well, imagine if we didn't have those stage three tax cuts, maybe we could just have 26 weeks of paid parental leave sooner than 2026, that women predominantly wouldn't have to wait for their own policy to come into fruition fully. And I wondered if that might be an ongoing dialogue or an ongoing comparison point that might be made against different policies and policy choices of this Labor government, especially during the budget, is, oh, well, you've kept the stage three tax cuts. You haven't scrapped them yet. Imagine what you could do in your budget. If you didn't have those, you know, what about pay parental leave? What about another policy that you could be implementing sooner? Do you think that that's going to be a critique potentially of the Labor government given all this ongoing discussion we've had for the last month about stage three tax cuts?
3: Yeah, look, I think that the stage three tax cuts for the whole time Labor has been in office and anything it says it can't fund, like an increase to job seeker, anything that Labor currently can't fund, immediately prompts the question, well, what about the stage three tax cuts? That's not something that's going to be touched in this budget. We had that little kite flying exercise last month. Jim Chalmers clearly wants to get rid mm. of them and um, the coalition knows that too because they keep hammering him on it. But it was something they briefly talked about, realised that or came to their conclusion that Australia wasn't ready for it and uh, reined it back in. But it does seem like it's a conversation that they're going to try again at a later point. Uh, it just... That amount of money we we saw last week, and I think Jim Chalmers cleverly dropped it, that the 10-year cost of those tax cuts has already gone up $11 billion. And it, like, it, potentially because of inflation, will keep going up. And mm. so it, it does seem untenable that a Labor government is going to be able to keep that while constantly having to have, like, a responsible budget, Uh, you know, having incredible things like this paid parental leave scheme but not being able to do it, you know, right now. Things like that are eventually going to keep adding up and I think the pressure will, will eventually become too great. And I think Labor wants it to become too great. I think they would like us... You know as a country to get to a point where we are having this conversation about the stage three tax cuts they're really trying to politically manage it so that they don't get stung for a broken promise and regardless of when it happens the coalition are going to go apeshit about it uh but you know i think the treasurer is trying to start a conversation well, all treasurers are trying to have a conversation with with the public. Um, I don't know how often the public is open to that conversation, but Jim Chalmers really does want to talk about the fiscal pressures, the the tightness of the budget, the debt, the deficit, uh, all these things, and yeah, he's trying to lay, I think, a, a long, a long path towards repealing those tax cuts I mean maybe that's just my optimism but I think there are a lot of people who are sensing that from his rhetoric and the way he has stopped he's absolutely said they're not on the table tonight but they're not not on the table ever you know yeah no it does seem that it's a long game and
0: that this is going to take some time uh, and certainly a longer public conversation. But, you know, the Australia Institute has certainly been leading, I think, the conversation from the civil society, putting out a lot of research and polling around these stage three tax cuts, which has been, I think, quite useful. And also their revenue summit talked about this a lot, having such prominent people like Rod Sims coming out and saying, this is ridiculous. So hopefully we get to a fever pitch next year. I wanted to raise also... Some of the things that we've heard about in the week leading up to this federal budget, including a recent audit that the government has done discovering that an extra $6.4 billion is going to be needed to cover unfunded costs left by the former government. So, you know, as soon as Labor came in, we saw Katie Gallagher and Jim Chalmers giving a press conference saying they were going to go through the budget line by line, looking at every single item, scrutinising whether it needs to be there. Clearly, they've discovered that some things are not funded and that also some things shouldn't be funded and will have their funding removed, as we've heard discussions yesterday with the Nationals making criticisms of some of that but I wanted to get a sense from you as to what are some of these little nuggets um, that Jim Chalmers has been leaving us and what does that indicate about tonight's budget and if you don't mind also addressing the well-being budget that you discussed in your column last week.
3: Yeah so there are a bunch of little numbers flying around that Katie Gallagher and Jim Chalmers have put out there. I, I sort of hate this point in the budget um, I don't go into the lockup myself, but in the week leading up, we get all these these numbers trickling out and they're not necessarily put on a, a balance sheet that you can see, you know, there will be actual financial documents in the lockup, but we get these numbers. So we've got this $6.4 billion of, of spending that actually with that number, it's money that the government is committed to that's stuff the coalition has left in place and didn't fund properly or just hadn't accounted for that has to be spent. And so it was an extra $6.4 billion that the government had to find. Uh, but then yesterday we saw with this waste and rorts audit um, that the government had found $10 billion in savings that they could make from coalition programs. Uh, there's going to be some cuts to some uh, grants programs. They're going to stop doing the Building Better Regions Fund and create their own growing regions program. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so we're getting all these numbers floating around, like $6 billion locked in here, $10 billion off here, $11 billion redirected here. Uh, this morning we were told that the deficit for this year is actually going to be half of what was predicted in March. It's, it's going to be a smaller deficit, but then... Uh, it's a $37 billion deficit in this budget tonight. So we've got all these numbers, but it is it is hard to put them together in one story. Uh, I think what they're trying to say is we've been left with this kind of mess. Mm, uh, sounds we've like been a left dog's breakfast. Yeah, we've been left with things we have to spend that they didn't account for in their budgets uh, that they have left in place. And also we've, with just rubbish spending that we're clearing out or redirecting. Um, so yeah, it it is in many ways about cleaning up, uh, this budget is, is about clearing some of this stuff so that hopefully the May budget in 2023, which would be a normal labor budget will be, uh, able to be, you know, the decks have been cleared a little bit and we can just have a normal budget. Um, as for the wellbeing budget. That is a new Labour commitment, which is that this budget is going to also have a, a well-being statement. Um, it's something that the New Zealand government has already put in place, and, and it's an idea that is floating around the world. And it's one that the Morrison government actually savaged. You know, sort of they were making fun of the idea of a well-being budget as being about yoga and You know retreats and and things but it's not it's about having a budget that actually doesn't just measure the economy on these you know these numbers that i've just been pulling out of the air that they've been dropping all week but actually measuring the well-being of the population and they haven't exactly explained what that is going to be yet this is this is the first time and it's going to be partly explaining how that's going to work but it's going to be things like measuring education health standards, the state of the environment, actually talking about climate change um, in the budget and considering, you know, the costs of that as well as there's costs to addressing it, but there are massive, massive costs to ignoring it, obviously. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the budget is going to be about laying down... Tonight's budget will be about laying down how the well-being measures are going to work. But one thing I did right about last week was the day that Jim Chalmers was out there talking about this well-being thing. Uh, we were also hearing about how the government is not going to be able to increase job seeker in this budget. Um, they've said all along, we can't afford that. Uh, they, there was a little boasting about, you know, job seeker going up with indexation, which is just standard. It's not an actual increase. It's just keeping up with the cost of living and arguably not even doing that. So, it is a bit, you know, awkward for the government government to be out there talking about people's well being. At the same time, it's going, sorry, we actually can't do anything to lift all of these people out of poverty. Uh, Even though we did the who- pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was only it was only possible then. Um, But yeah, so we we know that people's well being mm. is genuinely suffering because of the the lowly rate of job seeker which is below the poverty line and so even though we're having a well-being budget and we're going to start actually measuring people's wellness um we're not actually going to do the the most obvious thing that would actually lift a whole bunch of people's well-being the people with arguably the lowest levels of well-being in this country are not actually going to be helped by this budget
0: yeah and one of the other things that is clearly stark and highlights your point as well as is the kind of next layer of people up from that in addition. So the Albanese government is not going to extend the low and middle income tax offset, which means that workers who earn less than $126,000 won't get a tax break which can be worth up to $1,500. So, you know, now that we're seeing inflation continue to rise, uh, interest rates are still rising um, and inflation is supposed to peak in December at perhaps under 8% the government doesn't seem to have any plans to support those um, who are also the lowest earners in terms of those who are currently in employment. And the low and middle income tax offset has really been a kind of crucial leveller, it seems, especially given the fact that these other tax cuts to higher income earners are still coming into play and are still in effect.
3: Yeah. And that's something people have talked about with the stage three tax cuts, which is that those are permanent and the low- Mm. and middle-income tax offset was temporary. And the Australia Institute did some analysis the other week on the stage three tax cuts because, you know, there's this argument that actually everybody benefits from the stage three tax cuts because it's, you know, reducing a whole bunch of different tax brackets down. But actually because of the end of the low- and middle-income tax offset, a whole bunch of people are going to be worse off. A whole bunch of people are going to be paying more tax Yep. After the whole tax package finishes coming through, um, and it's the people on the on the lower and middle income who so are going to be paying more. The part of the reason for you know I'm sure the, the previous government extended the LMITO or the Lamington further because of the the treats budget they were doing. The current government doesn't want to do things like that because of inflation. There's this argument that doing anything to actually put a bit bit of extra cash in people's pockets, which that did, would actually increase inflation and and cause even more pain for people. But at the same time, the same argument doesn't seem to apply to giving a Mm. massive $9,000 tax cut to the wealthy. So. You know, the the inflation argument comes in when it's convenient. There are arguments about what's causing inflation, whether it is, you know, people's wages, and it's not because people's it's wages really not. are not going up. It's other things and it's, you know... It,
0: well, a lot of people have said it's company profits.
3: Yeah, that is the thing that's going up and, mm. and not a lot is being done to to try to tamp that down in the way that wages have been. So, yeah, the, the inflation line... Yes, something has to be done. The Treasurer keeps saying that this number one um, goal in this budget is to address inflation, but that means that people who are actually being squeezed by inflation don't necessarily get any help. It's kind of just knuckle down and and deal with it. The people who don't have a financial buffer are the ones who are going to
0: suffer. No intention to rhyme there, by the way, everyone. (laughs) Rachel, one thing that relates back to what we've just been talking about when I said profits, and it's something I chatted with Richard Dennis about uh, a little while ago, was the windfall profits tax. This has been an idea, a windfall tax for quite a while. And Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, was here in Australia in, I think it was July saying it's like a no-brainer. I don't know why you don't have one. And you wrote a column last week talking about the idea of a windfall tax, especially looking at the resources sector and especially gas exporters, because gas companies have banked up to $40 billion in windfall profits this year alone. So, in this country, $40 billion in windfall profits and it appears that the Australian government is not making the most of that situation. Do you think there's any hope that Labor are going to move on a windfall tax or are we mainly going to see in this budget the tax changes being what uh, the Labor government had already slated which was looking at multinationals?
3: Yeah I think there's almost no chance of seeing a windfall tax tonight. The Labor government is really, really concerned about bringing in any taxes that it didn't flag at the election, and they're especially scared of something like this that has, like, a vague resemblance to a carbon tax because it's about taxing uh, gas companies. It's just one of those ideas between this, the windfall tax, and the Stage 3 tax cuts being scrapped. There's just these two very obvious, uh, very... Economically sound ideas on the table that Labor won't touch. Is, one is worth the Australian Institute predicts that it could be up to, you know, twenty billion for a, a, the windfall tax. This pot of money they just won't touch because they're afraid of seeing being seen to either break a promise or bring in a tax that they didn't flag. But of course, governments can change their mind and should be able to change their mind if circumstances call for it and and in this case this is a completely uncontroversial tax mm. um, it's very common the, across the world isn't it yeah the, the uk has one and the australia institute actually did some research the australia institute really 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 goes in on this windfall tax mm. that just 12 percent uh, of voters are against a windfall tax i'm not sure who those voters are <laughs> uh, but yeah two-thirds of voters support a windfall tax that would be about asking the gas companies who are making massive amounts of extra money out of the situation in Ukraine to just pay a bit more on those windfalls. But uh, yeah, again, it's one of those things, Labor really is quite terrified of some of these things because of, of previous experiences. Because of either you know elections it lost or or losing government over certain things, mm. but it just isn't willing to go near them. But one thing I noticed that day was it was also you know it was a it was a windfall day. It was in the news again, but it was also the day that Labor was announcing huge investments for their rewiring the nation plan, which is a really really big scheme. It's it's Labor's attempt to actually you know try to start this this energy sort of revolution that we need to start getting up some huge, huge uh, renewables projects. And it's going to cost them. They they, have, they plan over the years for that to to be about, you know, a $20 billion package. And that is exactly what they could get from a windfall tax. What do you know? Mm. And it all
0: seems to align so well, you know, gas companies giving money to affect change against, you know, the climate emergency.
3: Beautifully aligned. So obvious. So tempting. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I can understand why Labor are scarred from the carbon tax, you know, moment, given that I guess you could say Peter Dutton and Tony Abbott might have similar political strategies when it comes to being in opposition and that he would pounce on anything that looks like a tax or acts like a tax. So, yeah, it's it's probably scary for Labor and they want to be ultra careful. But, you know, in those other areas like the low and middle income tax offset, I don't think there would be many in the coalition who would be against that as an idea because that's the kind of voting base that the coalition are now apparently targeting.
3: Apparently. Supposedly. (laughs) Not too young anymore, everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those uh, times have changed. The Last election, it was a climate election, Mm. whether you argue that's why Labor got in or why so many Greens got in or why Teals took so many seats off the coalition. The coalition is now sort of on the fringes of this issue. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see them mount an attack on Labor if it brought in a windfall tax. But, um, you know, they'll do anything that they'll attack anything that they can paint as a broken promise. And maybe we should talk about that. I know that the
0: opposition doesn't usually get much of a run, especially not in the early years when they have no chance of changing anything, but we do have a shadow treasurer and to remind everyone, if you don't know, it's Angus Taylor and he's been out talking about the budget even though we haven't fully seen it yet obviously is talking about electricity bills, you know people's household budgets, clearly because this isn't going to really change people's household budgets and that might be an opportunity to wedge labor. Um, but are there any other angles that the opposition is kind of working on at the moment around labor and their
3: plans? kind of every angle they can get their hands on, even when those angles contradict each other. Mm. So, as you said, they're going hard on the power bills because Labor did have a power bill pledge that isn't going to be met this year. Not that Labor had promised to meet it by this year, but um, at the same time, you've got Angus Taylor out there saying, oh, you know, this can't be a big spending budget. You know, Labor can't bring out a big spending, big taxing budget, which is not what it's going to be, but he wants to paint it that way anyway so he's calling for the government to not spend to not increase inflation to not do anything at the same time you've got other members of the coalition out there saying why isn't labor doing anything about cost of living you know mm-hmm. what is labor going to do they're leaving people behind at the same time as demanding but Labor not do anything so <laughs> you know they're also having a go at um Labor and the fact that we're heading towards a trillion dollars in debt. We've been hearing for months and months now uh, that we were left with almost a trillion dollars in debt. Debt is going to top a trillion dollars. And so we've seen uh, the coalition try to blame Labor. Uh, Barnaby Joyce was on Sunrise yesterday saying it'll be on Labor's watch if we go over a trillion. Um, Oh, okay. Even though the coalition did nine tenths of that debt. Um, So... They don't really seem to have an idea of what they want here. They're just kind of saying all the different things. Mm. Uh, they refuse to say, you know, even when it's directly put to them, okay, what would you do? They refuse to say that and they do yeah. that all the time. You know, oh, we're not in government, we don't have to say. But, you know, they want to have a, they want to criticise every cut and every spend at the same time. Yeah, wasn't there a comment
0: on Insiders um, where, I can't remember who it was. Um,
3: oh, you'll remember, I'm sure. It was, was Jane
0: Humes. Yeah, Jane. At one Hume. point, like, oh, well, we're in opposition.
3: We don't have to have policies. Yeah,
0: we don't need to have policies. Amazing. <laughs> oh. so I was pretty impressed with that one. Everyone thought, oh, someone being honest about what they really think.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and she she got the same thing actually yesterday on RN Breakfast. Patricia Carvel has tried to pin her down and say, okay, what would you cut? She was mm. complaining about the various coalition grants arguably rotted grants that the government plans to cut tonight, and complaining about that, but also saying spending needs to be cut. And she was asked, what would you cut? And she said, oh, I don't have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I do love these moments of clarity because they're
0: rare in politics. (laughs) Uh, Rachel, I wanted to also bring in here something which will continue to play a role in budgets, which is emergencies, because clearly we're having a lot of natural disasters and many of it has been driven by climate change in some way. Uh, and we've obviously had the floods across New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania predominantly in the last couple of weeks. It has been a moment where for me, and I think some satirists in the country have you know, raised this as a, a kind of point of reflection as well, that Wow, a flood crisis can actually just be dealt with quietly, methodically, seriously, in a united way between federal and state governments. And we don't also have
3: footage of a prime minister mopping a floor.
0: Floor, yeah, in a basketball court. Yeah, there was a joke, I think, on the chaser or the shovel saying, oh, gosh, you know, nation realises they wish they could just have, you know, the prime minister mopping the basketball floor during the floods and that would make them feel better about the whole thing. And, you know, it was this moment for me of, oh yeah, I remember that time where these things would happen and it would take the federal government a week to respond to a national disaster and an emergency. And then when they did, it would be mostly about photo ops. I mean, can you Kind of give us a bit of perspective here, Rachel, on the differences between the governments and the way that they are responding to crises, especially this latest
3: natural disaster of the floods. Yeah, well, what I'm getting from it, you know, and I read all of the news every day, is that we're we're hearing a lot more about what's actually getting done. What the actual risks are you know no it's not about the politics it's not about yeah. whether a particular community has been intentionally left out of of grants and whether that's been done along political lines it's not about we don't have you know the prime minister hiding from protesters in lismore as we previously saw it's it's sort of just we're just watching nothing to say get on here. With it yeah. yeah it it, it It's funny, it actually feels like less of a crisis and it is obviously still a massive crisis, but it doesn't come with this massive sense of chaos and, you know, anger and rage. It's just people getting on with it.
0: There's not an extra layer of unnecessary drama that didn't need to be there. Clearly, it's not just about Labor state governments working with a Labor federal government because there's a liberal New South Wales government and a, a liberal Tasmanian state mm. government. So, you know, it's um, it's kind of nice to have that. But also nice to see that the Labor government has been coming up with ideas, like policy ideas, including um, the emergency minister, Murray Watt, saying that he's considering building a semi-professional workforce to manage natural disasters and reduce the reliance on defence forces because, as we've seen recently and even in the last couple of weeks, the ADF have still had to be called in. And we are otherwise reliant upon mostly volunteers. And these volunteers do have day jobs. And although Australia is built on volunteerism, and I'm sure we would never want to not have that it does kind of make sense that if we're going to have so many more of these natural disasters that we do need to have government provide more solid,
3: consistent support. Yeah, and, it, I mean, this has been an issue with every disaster, it seems, mm. we've heard about the reliance on the ADF and yet we never really have a a conversation that goes past the end of the disaster about a more sustainable long-term solution. So let's see if this one actually goes somewhere. Um, but, yeah, certainly having the ADF called in for everything, whether it's this or whether it's for aged care crisis, isn't isn't shouldn't be the answer to all our problems.
0: Rachel, so tonight I know that, as we've heard, it is the budget. If people are thinking about watching it or not watching it, I think most people won't be watching it, (laughs) but we will. You know, if they wanted to to know what to look out for in the coverage of it, if they're not going to sit down and uh, watch the whole speech, what do you think might be the main message from Jim Chalmers tonight?
3: Look, the message they've been pushing for weeks now is that this is gonna be a responsible bread and butter budget. You know, it's gonna be uh family friendly. And I think, you know, whether people are interested enough in these childcare changes and paid parental leave changes, or whether that's sort of like, oh, we already knew about that, what's the new thing? Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's worth taking a look at what's actually actually in there for those for those policies. There will be like hundreds of stories dropping at seven 30, um, when the journalists who have been in the lockout come out and it can be overwhelming. I think, um, I having, I don't go into the lockup, but trying to get through all that stuff when it all drops is a lot. I think yeah. if you go to some of the media outlets you trust and, and look for some of the, the reporters you trust on the issues you're interested in and have a look at what they'll actually cover, you know, particular facets of the budget. And it won't just be, yeah, you, there ends up being what feels like dozens of people's like takes on the budget. And you know, it's, it's a lot, but if you actually mm. go looking for the spending that actually matters in the areas of interest, I think that's a better way to look at it. Absolutely. And
0: especially those people that you do trust. I think that's important because I, I always go to the people I trust on that night. It's usually Laura Tingle and uh, the guardian who seem to have the most, for me at least balanced factual analyses as well as obviously independent outlets like Crikey, The Monthly, and, you know, of course, SBS is always there, isn't it? So, yeah, there's some plenty of options and clearly community radio will be one of them too. I'm sure that the Breakfasters will cover the budget tomorrow morning like they usually do as well. So,
3: yeah, thank you so much, Rachel. No worries. Just I hope, a shout-out maybe also if, yeah. uh, between the Breakfasters, if you've got time in the morning, to also 7am we'll be putting out a budget special so that... That will be, I believe, Karen Middleton from the Saturday paper talking through the budget. So if you want to have someone else give you like sort of a 20-minute rundown of what mattered, it comes out first thing in the morning, you can listen to that as well. Exactly. The 7am podcast. Thank you so
0: much, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And people should also no doubt check out your
3: column. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I won't be putting out something tonight. I'm just doing my regular afternoon one today, but then, of course, the next day I will have even more analysis of the analysis. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much,
0: Rachel, for joining me today and good luck today. All the best. Thanks, Amy. Talk to you soon. (laughs) I've just been speaking with Rachel Withers, who is contributing editor to The Monthly and she's columnist for The Politics, which you can check out on The Monthly's website for free. There's no paywall there and Rachel's been doing fantastic work as always. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.